Good morning, Central Assembly. So good to be with you again and to continue this series, Case for Truth. Appreciate uh, Pastor Jim and the rest of the pastoral staff of just integrating me into this. Uh, the stuff that we've been covering is, is just right in my wheelhouse, and I, I love working with you guys through this. In, in previous installations of uh, this series, we've talked more generally about the nature of truth or specific social issues involving uh, truth also uh, in ways to more effectively share truth as we hand it down to the next generation. But as we kind of uh, turn a corner and we look to the next few sessions together, we're going to be focusing on the very center, the, the focus, the centerpiece of our faith, and that's the person Jesus. So I've been doing this kind of Christian education thing for the better part of three decades now, like 29, 30 years. And early on in my career as a professor, I started getting bombarded with uh, telephone calls and emails and private conversations from pastors and Chi Alpha ministers and youth pastors. Uh, Dr. Wave, is, is there anything that you know of that we can share with our young people, uh, with my child, with uh, folks uh, kids that are coming back from uh, their first year or so at the university uh, that, would, that would move the ball in the direction of even demonstrating that Jesus even existed because what we're told constantly is if you take the Bible off the table, it's a circular argument if you use it, but if you take the Bible off, the, off of the table, then there's no evidence that Jesus even existed as a real living human being, much less that he said what the Bible says he said and that he did the things that the Bible said that he did. And uh, I began to collect pieces of information from all over the place and decided that I would make this available to everybody, youth pastors, youth groups, young people in college and starting out in career, and even folks who are more seasoned that have been out in the workplace for a long time and have felt like you don't have a position at the table because all we've got is some warm, fuzzy feeling about a Jesus that lives in our heart, but we don't have that hardcore evidence that our society is requiring. Right? So to this morning, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to dive off into some material that uh, is outside of the Bible. So you, we can't be argued down uh, that, well, you, yeah, you're just a Bible thumper. You're just citing texts that you learned when you were a kid in Sunday school or the like. And we're also not going to be dealing with these 2nd to 5th century A.D. Gospels that you may have heard about first through the book or the, uh, or the movie, The Da Vinci Code. Um, that stuff is either Christian or kind of quasi-partially, uh, sort of heretically Christian. But that we've already written about, and you can get that online. Um, this article is available, and it's interesting stuff. But that's not what we're going to focus on. We're not going to look at even the writings of the early church leaders that began about the year A.D. 95 and move on through. From the, the end of the first century on, 
we've got all kinds of written material from the early church fathers, but no, what we're going to be looking at today is what pagans are saying about our spiritual forefathers. We're going to be looking at the, the gospel of public domain. What's out there in the marketplace? What's the National Enquirer version of what people are hearing about Christianity in the first century and the early years of the second century A.D.? It's some fascinating stuff, so let me encourage you. You don't really have to take notes. This stuff is going to be online, and you can go back to it. You can get the website. You can uh, get uh, other information from re-watching this, uh, from passing this along to, to neighbors and coworkers, friends of yours, family members that have, you've had these kind of con conversations in the past, and then it got to a dead end where you just didn't know where to go next. This is the, here's where we can go next. Uh, this gospel of public domain is stuff that comes to us from non-believing sources. All but two of the ones I'll share with you this morning are from anti, not even neutral, but anti-Christian. We're going to look at literary evidence. We're going to look at some archaeological evidence. This stuff is going to be from the earliest years of the church, the first century, early second century. And you can tell, you should be able to tell from what these people say, what they're writing, they're not quoting from our Bible. They're not borrowing this stuff from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or the early preaching and teaching in the book of Acts. Just give you an example. We're going to be looking at a first century source. His name is Josephus. He is a Jew. He is a contemporary of the apostles. He's writing at the same time that our gospels are being written, but he never came to faith. So here's a great place to start. And Josephus says, at that time, there was a wise man, man called Jesus. And for all of the hundreds of websites that are out there in internet land, that whose primary goal is to demonstrate that no one called Jesus really ever existed. He's kind of a mythical, sort of a legendary figure. He's kind of a bedtime story kind of guy. Um, but a real historical Jesus, um, nah, he never existed. Well, they can all just dangle the keys, turn out the lights, and go home now because we've got a first century non-Christian, non-biblical source that's saying at this time there was a wise man, man who was called Jesus. End of story, right? But not really, because I've got to do something to fill in the rest of the time for the church service today. So, his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. It's exactly what we get in Acts 10. Jesus went about doing good and healing all those who were sick and oppressed of the devil. And many from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Let's see if this is specific enough for you. Pilate condemned him to die, to be crucified and to die. You ever heard that before? We hear that in our Gospels, right? We hear that in the book of Acts. We hear that in the letters of the New Testament. But now you've got a first century Jewish land of Israel, non-believing Jewish source writing in the same Greek and at the same time as the New Testament, and he's affirming all of these things that our biblical gospels have taught us all along. 
It, this is what Josephus says as he continues. And those who became his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. Why is that? Because they reported that he appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Resurrection. It's not just some myth cooked up by the biblical authors. This is out there in the gospel of public domain. This message about a resurrected Jesus has so penetrated the society of the first century and early second century, everybody knows about it. Everybody's in on this. This is the same message that we got from our Bible all these 20 plus centuries. They reported that he appeared to them alive after his crucifixion. And accordingly, he was perhaps, because Josephus never personally came to faith, makes him a great witness, right? He was perhaps the Messiah about whom the prophets have recounted wonders. In other words, that there was a miraculous aspect of Jesus' ministry that was predicted by the prophets and fulfilled by this guy who may have been the Messiah. Here's another text from Josephus. Josephus says, Ananus, the high priest, he appears in the New Testament in the book of Acts as Ananias, just spelled a little bit differently thought that he had a favorable opportunity because the procurator, the Roman military governor, Festus, who we also read about in the book of Acts, uh, was one of the guys who tried uh, the apostle Paul. Festus was dead, and Albinus, his successor, was still on the way. So what does he do? He convenes the Sanhedrin, and he brought to them a man whose name was James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ. There we've got another testimony from the same first century, non-believing, Greek-writing source, Josephus, talking about Jesus. Now we get his title. He was called the Christ. It's just a Greek word for Mashiach or Messiah. He brought before them James, the brother of Jesus called Christ, and certain others, and accused them of having transgressed the law, and he delivered them up to be stoned. This is in A.D. 62. This is during the days of the book of Acts, during the days of the lives of the apostles. Here's another text from, written by a guy named Thalos. His work did not survive in entirety, but only in quotes in other authors. And so Julius Sextus Africanus mentions this, that when Thalos is writing, he describes the darkness that came over the face of the earth at the, in the last moments of Jesus' life as he hung on the cross. And this Thalos attributes to an eclipse of the sun, which Julius says he doesn't think that part's right. The part about Jesus being crucified, hanging on the cross, and the darkness that took place, he checks off on that. He's just taking issue with that one, what's the causality of that darkness? Follows A.D. 55, middle of the first century, possibly before all of the Gospels were written. What advantage, uh, says Mara, a guy writing to his son, who's probably off in college, He's writing this in Aramaic in A.D. 73, and he says, What advantage did the Jews gain by killing their wise king? Well, the Jews didn't have a king in A.D. 73 or any time during the first century. They were under the Caesar in Rome. And so 
continue to listen. Because their kingdom was taken away at that same time, Socrates is not dead because of his disciple Plato who preserved his teachings, nor the wise king is he really dead and gone because of the new teachings that he laid down, preserved by his, perpetuated by his disciples. Doesn't ever say the name Jesus, but we know who he's talking about, right? There's nobody else that fits this bill. Another text. This is a Roman governor, the governor of Bithynia, and he's writing in the year A.D. 111. In the first years of the second century, he's writing to his boss, the emperor, the, the emperor of the Roman Empire. And he writes and he tells them about a problem he's having in Bithynia because it has become so heavily Christianized. And he feels like he's responsible to persecute these Christians. People should be worshiping. If they're worshiping, they should be worshiping the Roman gods and they should be worshiping the Caesar as a living deity among them. But he's having this outbreak of this scourge called Christianity, and he says, they, the Christians, were in the habit of meeting on a certain day of the week, a fixed day at sunrise, and reciting a hymn to Christ as God. Now, this is A.D. 111. I don't know if you remembered that um, development that took place a couple of decades ago, the Da Vinci Code. It was written as a book, Dan Brown, made into a movie by Ron Howard. Remember Opie on um, Andy Griffith? He grows up and he he's, makes this movie. And, and, the, and the, the complaint there or the charge is that uh, this myth of Jesus and of his resurrection and of his good life and miraculous works and all that. So that was all just cooked up by a group of old people that got together, bishops of the church in A.D. 325. Can you do the math? You only missed it by a couple of hundred years. Jesus is already being worshipped as divine, as God in the flesh, in the year A.D. 111. And this in Bithynia, which is a long way from where this starts in the land of Israel. Pliny the Younger, governor of Bithynia. Now we have an official Roman historian. He wrote a life of the Caesars called the Histories, and he was, you know, a, an archivist. He had access to all the royal records. And so Cornelius Tacitus is an important source, a Roman source, a Latin source. And he writes, Nero substituted as culprits in his own place, because he's the one who started the fire that burned down a quarter of the city of old Rome as culprits and punished in the most unusual ways those who were hated for their shameful acts. Doesn't sound like he's a friend of ours, does he? Okay, this guy is, is, is anti-Jesus, anti-Christian, anti-you. Punished in the most unusual ways those hated for their shameful acts whom the crowd called Christianoi, Christians in Latin. The founder of this name, Christ, ah, there we go again. We've got literary demonstration that Jesus is not make-believe. He's not pretend. He's not a ghost. He's, he's not a king author figure. He's a real, live human being. And in the early second century, this guy was born in the middle of the first century. He's writing about this guy uh, who founded a movement whose, ne whose, whose name was Christ who had suffered the extreme penalty, which is just a nice way of referring to crucifixion, 
Romans were doing that at this time. During the reign of Tiberius, at the hands of one of our procurators, Roman military governors, Pontius Pilate, is that accurate enough, specific enough for you? Suppressed for a time, the deadly superstition erupted again. Not only in Judea, we hear about the origins of the church, the outpouring of the Spirit in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, that it started in Judea, this deadly superstition that was suppressed for a time, but then erupted again in um, the capital city of Rome, where all things horrible and shameful everywhere come together and become popular. You didn't know that you were going to come to church and find out that your faith, your chosen religious expression is a part of the sewer system that all dumps into this big sewage pool called the capital city of Rome. Therefore, they were covered with the skins of wild animals and they were uh, uh, torn apart by dogs. They were crucified, and then when the day ended, they were burned as torches. You've heard this kind of stuff talked about in sermons before, haven't you? Well, now you have the actual, the source of that information. You've got his name, his date, and even the location within his writings. And by the way, a lot of this stuff, not all, but a lot of this stuff is on the internet. You could find these things on the internet Praise the name of St. Al of Gore for his wonderful invention. Isn't that internet wonderful? Isn't it great that we have inventors among us like that? Kids, if you don't understand the reference, find somebody old. This turnabout is fair play because, you know, they, they tell me that if you've got something wrong with your cell phone, just find the next person that's young and grab them and say, fix this. All right? We get to kind of give back that way. Burned as torches. These are our spiritual forefathers that this official Roman archivist, historian, is telling us about. This is part of our heritage, that heritage of proud martyrdom, uh, of giving of self for uh, our uh, trust in Jesus. Uh, we hear about a contemporary of Tacitus. His name is Suetonius. And Suetonius writes, Claudius Caesar expelled the Jews from Rome and that's in A.D. 49. It's called the Edict of Claudius. And this is the reason why we have people like Paul meeting Aquila and Priscilla, Jews who were from Rome, but he met them in Corinth in Acts 18. This is the reason for that displacement. Yeah, there were refugees back in the first century too. Since they were always, these Jews had been expelled from Rome because they were always making disturbances because of the instigator Crestus. You see the Latinism there? This is simply the Latin spelling of the Greek Christos, from which we get the word, this is a pop quiz, Christ, exactly. I love grad school. I, I, I taught undergrads for 30 years, so you guys are great. We also hear from Suetonius, Punishment was inflicted upon the Christiani, again a, a Latinism, the followers of Christ, a class of people of a new and evil doing superstition. Sounds like he's really in favor of us, doesn't it? He'd fit right in here at Central Assembly. No, this guy is very clearly anti-Christian and yet in this backhanded kind of way, we're able to get these references to a burgeoning 
Jesus movement that has reached Rome, reached all around the world, and is having an impact and making its way into even the kind of popular literature, you know, those cheesy paperback books like you can get at Walmart, in the, in the work of Suetonius, the kind of popular historian. Not just history writers. This guy is a playwright. You could call him the Shakespeare of the early second century, Lucian of Samosata, and he says, that some guy we don't even know anything else about, Peregrinus, was second only to that one that they still worship today. Who do you worship? You worship deity, right? So this is, again, connecting to the person of Jesus in the early second century, divinity, deity. 200-plus years before you get to the Council of Nicaea and the story of the Da Vinci Code. Uh, Peregrinus was second only to that one that they still worship today, the man in Palestine, land of Israel, who was crucified, death by crucifixion, because he brought this new form of initiation into the world, some kind of religious reason for this crucifixion into the world. That first lawgiver of theirs, this one that was crucified, uh, uh, persuaded them that they're all brothers the moment that they transgress and they deny the Greek gods and they begin worshiping that crucified and the word there philosophus means teacher a teacher of wisdom and living by his laws again Jesus not referred to by name here but his bio is all over this text from Lucian of Samosata if it's out there in plays, people, this is the MTV of that world. This message that you've believed much of your life, that you read about in our four biblical gospels, has so penetrated this world that it's gotten out there into the world of the public domain. It's in MTV. It's in popular plays. Uh, we have another text from a Greek philosopher whose name was Celsus, not Celsius, that would be a way you measure temperature if you're somewhere other than the United States, but Celsius, okay? This guy is, he's got some information from the public domain. It's twisted, it's, it, it's perverted, but, but listen to the things that he says that resound throughout our four Gospels. Jesus fabricated the story of his birth from a virgin, all right? We hear about virgin birth in Matthew and Luke. He came from a Jewish village. Some of you may even know its name. There you go. The little town of Nazareth, 400 approximately people in the first century. He came from a Jewish village and from a poor country woman who learned, earned her living by spinning. Now, he's got some information that even the gospels don't tell us. Mary made cloth from which clothing was made. That's according to Celsus, or Celsius, if you like. She was driven out by her husband, who was a carpenter by trade. Whoops, we just got another biblical reality confirmed. Mary, husband Joseph, who was a... Yeah, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, the carpenter? We hear in our Gospels. And when she was convicted of adultery, we hear about this in statements or little innuendos that we get from the Jewish leadership, for example, in John chapter 8. He, we are not illegitimate. We know who our father is. A little bit later, aren't we right in saying that you are Samaritan? All of these are real slights against Jesus' lineage. 
one of the reasons why we have a big long genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 1 and in Luke in chapter 3. This Christians, first century Christians, are pushing back against this kind of stuff. Carpenter by trade, when she was convicted of adultery and had a child by a soldier named Pantera, you'll hear about this from the rabbis as well, sort of a play on words. It's just switching letters around. Instead of the word Parthenos, which means virgin, he's the son of the virgin, they've twisted it around and turned this into the word panther, Pantera, uh, supposedly a soldier that Mary had illegitimate relationship with. This is the way that you speak condescendingly of some person or group of people that you disagree with. Your mama, right, is common in, throughout all cultures. So these guys are engaging this in this in the gospel of the marketplace or the national inquirer of the first and early second century. She had been driven out by her husband, and while she was wandering disgracefully, she secretly bore Jesus. Now we have, you know, the name, Jesus. It, because Jesus was poor, foxes have their holes and birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, right? Okay, so because he was poor, he hired himself out as a laborer in Egypt. In the Gospels, do we hear about Jesus ever being in Egypt? Yes. Angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream. This is Matthew chapter 2. Arise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. There are those who are trying to take the child's life, and that's what they do. So Jesus spends some time in Egypt. I guess maybe at that time he learned how to walk like an Egyptian. You would think when in Rome, because Jesus was poor, he tired himself out as a laborer in Egypt, and there he learned certain magical powers, and that's a theme that you're going to hear as well through the rest of this stuff, because we get this all the way back in the first century in our Gospels. We know that you cast out demons. We know you can do the miraculous, but you do it by the power of Beelzebub, a nickname for Satan. So, Yes, we recognize that the miraculous is attached to your ministry, but what we're saying is that the power behind your ability to do the miraculous is illegitimate. Just like his birth, so also the source of his miracle-working power. Earned, he learned certain uh, magical uh, powers that Egyptians are proud to have. He returned full of pride in these powers, do we hear about Jesus coming back from Egypt to the land of Israel? Matthew chapter 2. And an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream in Egypt and said, Arise and take the child and his mother and return to the land of Israel. Those who sought the child's life are now dead. These things are corroborating material that we get in our Gospels, albeit sometimes in a very backhanded kind of way. So he returns to the land of Israel full of power, pride in these miraculous, magical powers, and he gave himself the title of God. Again, the connection between Jesus and deity in these early, early sources. Let's just take a break from texts and look at some archaeology for a minute because, you know, everybody loves pictures, right? 
Okay, so one of them I think we just recently spoke about. This is a bone box, an ossuary, a, a kind of a mini coffin uh, where after a body has decomposed, the family returns in a second stage of burial, gathers the bones and puts those in the box. They're, they're only about as long as the longest bone in a human's body, which is the femur. Okay? So this bone box dates to A.D. 62. How do we know that? Because we know from that Josephus text that that's when James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned to death by the Sanhedrin. So this has, if you look very closely, a, an inscription right along the front of the bone box. And when you blow it up, you can see it even better. It's written in a beautiful Hebrew hand there. And then an artist reconstruction, Yaakov bar Yosef ahui di Yeshua. And the translation of that is James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. X marks the spot, ladies and gentlemen. Is that not awesome? I love that written in stone, as it were. Here's another little piece written in stone. This comes to us not from the land of Israel where that ossuary was discovered, but from the catacombs in Rome. In the middle of the second century, 125, 150, something like that, uh, written pretty clearly, as you'll be able to see, by someone who was making fun of a contemporary who was a, a Jesus worshiper. So maybe you can look I don't know about the back, but you can see here some arms extended, legs extended, a torso, and then the head of an animal. Uh, another way of looking at that, a little bit different camera exposure, gives it more clearly. You can see that the man on the cross has a donkey's head with his hands attached to the cross beam and his torso, his legs, and then you can see a man here standing at the foot of the cross with his arm uplifted in worship toward the crucified Jesus. And then there's a Greek inscription down below. Here's an artist reconstruction of that, and the Greek is really easy to read. The guy's name is Alexamenos. Alexamenos Sibete worships Theoi, his gods, and then you have the X, the Chi. It's the first letter in the word Christos. And it became, in the early centuries of Christianity, a common abbreviation, you know, like Tom for Thomas or, or Jim for James, just an abbreviation uh, for the word Christos, referring to Christ. Elexamenos is worshiping his gods. They don't even use the singular there, theos where we get theology from. They use the plural, his God's Christ, the man with the donkey head, written by a pro-Christian? No, it, not exactly, not with that depiction. Let's take a look at some early rabbis. It's taught, and that's a technical term meaning from the earliest rabbinic texts or stratum that we have from the earliest days of the movement of the Pharisees slash rabbis. It is taught that Rabbi Eliezer of 1st century A.D. into the early years of the 2nd century A.D. said to the sages, did not Ben Stata bring spells from Egypt in a cut in his flesh? Do you remember Celsus? He learned certain magical powers in Egypt that he brought back. This is that same tradition. 
Well, who is this Benstada? Benstada is Ben, there it is again, Pantera. But if you take those letters, and it's just a play on words, move them back around, it's Parthenos, virgin. What does Ben mean? Son of. So Benstada is the son of the virgin. The mother was Miriam. And here we get a really interesting little tidbit from the biography, The Life of Jesus, because Luke, not Matthew, not Mark, and not John, but Luke regularly, consistently refers to the person we know of as Mary by her full Hebrew name, Miriam. So Mary is an abbreviation or a nickname for the longer name, given name, Miriam. Really interesting. The addresser of women's hair. Now this gives you ladies all the permission that you'll ever need to spend as much time and as much money as you need at the beauty salon. It's right there grounded and rooted in the holy family. Take the money and run. The mother, of, the, the mother was Miriam, the dresser of women's hair. She was false to her husband. Again, that charge of the illegitimacy of Jesus runs throughout these um, anti-Christian uh, diatribes. Um, another text from the rabbis, Jesus escaped to Egypt. Celsus told us that. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that. Jesus escaped to Egypt. And a teacher has said, this is also technical terminology in the original language, meaning from the earliest rabbinic stratum, all right? A teacher has said, Jesus the Nazarene practiced magic and led Israel astray, meaning he showed a sign and a wonder, just like Deuteronomy 13 says, but then led astray to the worship of a God other than the covenant God of Israel. Who would that be? Well, it would be him as the covenant God of Israel. But this they claim is heresy, and this is punishable by death, Deuteronomy 13. Here's another text. Rabbi Yochanan said in the beginning he was a prophet. He had a great beginning. He started out okay, but in the end he was a diviner. He was using magic to accomplish his miraculous works, and that's inappropriate and punishable also by death. Rabbi Papa said, this is what they say. She changes gears and goes back to the lineage of Jesus. She, this would be Miriam or Mary, was the descendant of princes and governors. And this is what we hear about Mary, that she and Joseph are from the lineage, the house and lineage of David. But played the harlot with, again, we get this carpenter. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, the carpenter? It's fascinating stuff. The rabbis taught, again, this is that technical language of in the earliest days of the rabbinic movement, uh, they taught that Jesus had disciples. What this means is that Jesus was indeed a rabbi, and he's called this dozens of times in the New Testament text. Rabbi, where are you staying? Rabbi, this person did this, that, and that. Rabbi, we weren't able to cast the demon out of this guy. Rabbi, rabbi, rabbi. Well, one of Jesus' disciples was a guy named in Hebrew, Matai. Who does that sound like? You would be right. Well, what about Nakai? That's a short version of the name. Um, just play around with it for a second. Naka. That's it. Nicodemus. Nicodemus. John chapter 3. Netzer is probably just confusion with Jesus' place of origin, because in Hebrew, the word Nazareth is Natseret, 
or Natsrat. So it's that N-T-S-R uh, root, so Netzer. Buni is more than likely a reference to James and John. How so? Because Jesus nicknamed them the sons of rage or sons of thunder. In Hebrew, that is Benay, Buni, Benay Regesh. And then Todah just means thank you in Hebrew. I think they ran out of names like some moms and dads do toward the end of having kids. I, I know, not you, but other folks, you know. Here's another text, a baraita. This is technical terminology meaning from the earliest rabbinic stratum. A baraita recounts an incident involving Bendama, the son of Dama, in which a snake bit him. Following the attack, Yaakov, we usually translate that James, Yaakov of the village of Sakanya, who was a heretic. Why? Because he was a disciple of Jesus the Nazarene. And this, all of this was done in order to fulfill what the prophet said, and he shall be called a, come on, Nazarene. There it is. It's a reference to the city of Nazareth, okay? Came to heal him. Okay, so Jesus still has disciples. And in the early second century, some of these guys are still around. They're still alive, and they're in the marketplace. Remember, we talked about this. This is the gospel of the marketplace. And these guys, in Jesus' name, are still able to function as that royal priesthood and holy nation, just like us, and to go out and minister healing to people. They're known for this. Another one. Rabbi Eliezer, this is guy, that guy that was living in the first century and lived on into the early years of the second century. Once I was walking in the upper marketplace, a gospel of the marketplace, of Tsipori, this is 3.4 miles north of Jerusalem, uh, north of Nazareth. I mean, it's, you can see one place from the other. So he's walking in the marketplace of Sephoris, and I found a man who was one of the disciples of Jesus the Nazarene. They're still around in his day, and his name was the same guy, Yaakov of Kepharsakanya. And he said to me, Jesus the Nazarene taught me the following. And it's a really interesting passage. You can find this at safaria.org. You can put it on your phone and walk around with all of rabbinic literature in your pocket. Praise Al Gore's name. <laughs> you know what I mean. Rise up in the gate and call his name blessed. Because we can walk around with the, all of the early stuff from the early rabbis, most of it in English, and walk around with it in our pocket on our cell phone. You can read the rest of this story. It's really pretty interesting. This one is amazing. They crucified him on the eve of Passover. You say, well, I thought Jesus died on Passover. No, it doesn't work like that. You sacrifice that sacrifice from 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. in Judaism. At one point, Josephus tells us that a quarter of a million lambs were sacrificed in Jerusalem for one Passover. So Jesus is the first of those because the Bible says he died at 3 p.m. All right, and so on this, Jesus is crucified right before the Passover starts. The sun goes down, and according to the Jewish reckoning of time, the next day begins, and that is Passover. That's why you have a Seder dinner, a Passover meal, a dinner meal. So they crucified him on the eve of Passover. Why? Because he practiced magic, and he led Israel astray using those according to these guys, fake signs and wonders done by the power of the dark side. Some guy named Onkelos, he wrote a, a, a translated one of the early Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible into, 
into Greek. So Onkelos went and raised Jesus the Nazarene from the grave through necromancy. Notice, they're acknowledging that Jesus resurrected. What they're saying is, but the means by which he was resurrected were illegitimate. They used the power of the dark side to raise departed spirits, necromancy. This was his sin. He mocked the words of the sages. One of the last passages that I want to look at is this text. It's in a long passage talking about Jesus in the Babylonian Talmud. And at one point, the rabbis say, Woe to him who makes himself alive by the name of God. So just like with his miracles and exorcisms, what these guys are saying is, hey, the cat's out of the bag. The, the tomb is empty. He's appeared to literally hundreds and hundreds of people personally after his resurrection. So what do we do? We simply say, yes, he was resurrected, but it was, it was an illegitimate resurrection. It was done by his use of the name of God in a ritual, uh, magical formula that was able to kind of reignite his life force, bring him back to, to life. So if you can't deny the reality, what you do is you undercut the source of that reality. Does this make sense? I mean, if, if you were anti-Christian and you were trying to give some sort of pushback, effective pushback that everybody would quickly understand to this Jesus story, then this is, what, this is where you go. This is what you do. But, you know, it, irrespective of all of these slaps, these slights against the, the actual, the real historical biography of Jesus, what we can kind of summarize, we can conclude from these texts, non-Christian texts, outside the Bible text, is, yeah, there actually was a man named Jesus, and there, all of the other websites and stuff whose primary focus is to deny this can just kind of, I guess, close down or do something else for a living. Because we've got this in all 21 references. Um, he was from a Jewish village. He was an, had an earthly father who happened to be a carpenter, just like the Bible says. His mother's name was Mary. Mary was of royal ancestry. He and his family were poor. All the stuff we get from this gospel of the marketplace that's confirming or corroborating our uh, faith based on our scriptures. His opponents claim that Mary was unfaithful. We get this in John 8 and elsewhere. His opponents claim that he was illegitimate, the same thing. He claimed virgin birth. We've got that in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. He escaped to Egypt and later returned to Israel. We have that in Matthew chapter 2. He had a brother named James. He would eventually become the leader of the church in Acts 15 in the book of Galatians. He was known to be wise. He was known to be virtuous and godly. We get this in the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts. He was known as a teacher. He had uh, disciples. He was a rabbi. He was known as a prophet. He uh, founded a new community of brothers, right? If your brother smites you on the cheek, if your brother takes you to court, if your brother sins, go and restore him. Uh, he founded a new community of brothers. He worked miracles, although they, his opponents claimed that he did this by the dark side of the force. He, his opponents claimed that he led Israel astray. Uh, he was called the Christ. He claimed divinity. He was worshipped by his followers as God 
hundreds of years before there would be a Council of Nicaea, a la the version that the Da Vinci Code presents. He was condemned by a Jewish court on the eve of Passover, and yet, interestingly, he was crucified by Romans. I don't know of another example in ancient history where a Jewish court condemned, but the Romans carried out the execution. The Gospels tell us that, despite how unusual it was, and these texts tell us exactly the same story. His earliest followers claimed that he was resurrected from the dead, and we have this Josephus, first century Jewish, non-Christian, Greek writing just like the New Testament source that says he was perhaps, he was perhaps the Messiah. In other words, basically everything about Jesus' earthly bio, you know, that we can corroborate, things that assertions made by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, are corroborated by this gospel according to the marketplace, this national inquire of the first and early second century. So this stuff that we've looked at over this half an hour, I hope that it's answered a whole lot of questions for you. Is there really any evidence for Jesus outside the Bible? Or is that just kind of a nursery story? Is that a bedtime story that we tell kids so that they won't have to be afraid in the dark? Is this just some kind of a myth or legend to make us feel good about life after death? Is, is this just all to make-believe, some kind of a composite collection of stories, kind of like a Robin Hood or, or King Arthur? Is that the category that this person of Jesus falls into? This stuff is answering these questions no, it's not a myth at all. It's real. In fact, it's, it's in your face real. The, 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 the amount of evidence that tips the scale in favor of trusting these biblical accounts is overwhelming. And so I guess maybe turnabout is always fair play, right? It's, it's only appropriate that maybe I ask you a couple of questions. Is that fair enough? For those that have been sitting on the fence, maybe raised in a Christian family, maybe heard the good news on multiple occasions, but just haven't decided to check into this whole thing, and you, you just it's sort of been, well, I don't know, well, maybe, or, you know, I, I hear all this stuff that's said out there in the, in, in the secular press, uh, either at Easter or Christ, uh, at Christmas, you know, on the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, the National Geographic Channel, they love to put out these sorts of feelers, you know, in, inject these points of doubt. You know, well, maybe indeed Jesus and Mary got together. Maybe they had a family. Um, maybe this is all just kind of make-believe. Christians put words in Jesus' mouth, and they ended up in the Gospels. Those kinds of, you know what I'm talking about. You got this maybe in your intro to religion class or your world religions class when you were a freshman or a sophomore in college. This kind of stuff was being beaten around by your peers when you were in high school. I'm asking you, has has the pendulum tipped in, in the direction of truth? Have you seen in these non-biblical sources ample reason to embrace the message of the Scriptures that Jesus, born, lived, miracles, crucified, resurrected from the dead, glorified? Now, is that resonating in your heart? I want to encourage you 
to respond. I'd ask for the leaders, uh, the, for the prayer team um, folks to, to come forward. And, and we want to give you an opportunity to have someone align with you in prayer. And I want to encourage you to commit your life to this master Jesus. The jury, as they would say, is in. The verdict is in. I'd encourage you to respond accordingly. There's another question that I would ask, but just to a completely different group of folks, and that is, um, you made a commitment with, to Jesus uh, many years ago, and maybe you wanted to hedge your bets a little bit, you know, like you diversify your portfolio, and you don't want to buy completely in, and maybe Jesus is not totally Lord of your, I don't know, your free time. Maybe he's not completely Lord of this emotional part of your life and, and, and you know that you've got anger issues and, and you know that that needs to be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a pocketbook problem. Maybe it's a, a matter of finances. I, I want Jesus to be my fire insurance. I want to make sure that I don't bust hell wide open when I die. All I want is just to go to heaven, okay? There's so much more to this than that. Jesus said he came that he might bring us abundant life. That we might have life and have it more abundantly. There's so much more to this. I want to ask you, what you've seen this morning that confirmed what you've been reading in your Bible for hundreds and hundreds of years? Are you ready to go to the next level of, of devotion and of commitment? Maybe, maybe it's something as simple as, as this. I, I've, I've been working around mostly unbelievers, and I get shouted down because, yeah, all of that is just myth and legend. It's great for you. I'm glad that makes you feel good. But for me, have you been equipped maybe to take your witness to the next level? I, I want to encourage you. Go ahead and say yes to this Jesus of the evidence. And if you want to seal that in prayer, then you've got prayer team members that will stand alongside of you, align with you, and pray through, and, and, and go, ahead and, go ahead and jump in the deep end of the pool. There's no need to wait around in the kiddie pool any longer. On your level of commitment, just go ahead and make Jesus the Lord of all the kingdoms of your life. Just go ahead and do it. Let's pray. Would you stand with me, please?